Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast where we explore all things assisted reproductive technology. I'm Ellen Trackman. I am your co-host, um, an attorney specialized in assisted reproductive technology, and I'm here with my sister, Jennifer White. Yay! I'm, I, I'm not an attorney. I, I don't even play one on TV. Uh, <laughs> but you, I, you like attorneys. Uh, sometimes, sometimes I don't. It depends on what they've said to me that day. Um, but, but generally, generally, I do like attorneys. And also, I am the co-owner of an agency, a surrogacy agency, which is Colorado Surrogacy, Montana Surrogacy, and New Mexico Surrogacy. But more than that, I'm super excited today. Ah, did it. I said excited. Every time, every one of you should be counting. If this was a drinking game, you would be counting how many times we said the word excited. Um, uh, I started drunk, so. Oh, well, see, there you go. Drinking game times 10. <laughs> uh, we are. We get to talk to Carol Lieber-Wilkins, who I have had the honor of talking to at um, a number of conferences, and I just really think that she is a super rock star as far as mental health and uh anything in the assisted reproductive technology world is concerned in that way. Um, she has a, a super incredible story about um, what brought her to have an interest um, more fully in assisted reproductive technology. And I can't wait for you all to hear it too. We are here today with Carol Lieber-Wilkins. I'm very excited to talk about um, kind of an under-discussed area of assisted reproductive technology, which is the mental health piece. And Carol, you are renowned um, in this area as an expert. Um, welcome to the show. And if you don't mind giving your own introduction as well. Absolutely. I'm happy to. Thank you so much for the invitation and the opportunity. Um, I am a marriage and family therapist in the West Los Angeles area, and I've been working in the field of family building, infertility, reproductive medicine, adoption, egg donation, sperm donation, surrogacy, for about 30 years. You, you name it. That's a lie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it's you a lie in a long time. It's a, it's a long time, and of course, the field has evolved so much over time. When I first got started, I was doing way more pre-adoption consultations and helping people move into family building through adoption. And, and then as time has gone on, of course, now I'm probably doing way more consultations and assisting people to move into egg donation and or embryo donation, although adoption is still a part of what I do. But primarily, it's the focus on how incredibly hard and challenging it is to not be able to become a parent when you want to, how you want to, with whom you want to, uh, and helping people through that process, which often involves grief and loss, and assisting them to find the right path to parenthood for them Luckily, we live in a time where there are a lot of options. We may not initially like all of them, but it's great to have a lot of options, but it's also very confusing to have a lot of options. Right. I've seen, I've seen studies that people are un, they're less happy with more options, right? Because <laughs> then you, you doubt and you question yourself more when you have so many options. It's hard to choose sometimes, um, but it's great to be in a position to be able to educate people about the differences between the different family building options and yet what they have in common so that at least when people are making those decisions they're well informed and they have a better understanding of what their family might look like in the future so so you come to this from a, a personal background uh, related to a little bit of this as well we'd love to hear as much as you're comfortable talking about with that of course Oh, of course. I'm pretty much an open book. Anybody who knows me knows my story. Uh, like most people who do this work, I do come to it through my, my own um, experience. I was uh, licensed as a marriage and family therapist in January of 1984. And six months later, while just starting to open a practice, I was diagnosed with very, very early premature ovarian failure at the age of 30. So at the age of 30, I was told by a doctor that I was in menopause, that there was no cure for it, 
and that if I wanted to be a mother, I would quote unquote have to adopt. And in 1984, the first person in the world born through egg donation had not even yet been born when I was diagnosed, um, although would be born sometime that year in Australia, but it was the very, very first. So essentially when I was diagnosed, there was no such thing as egg donation. Um, and so after about three years of crying and processing and grieving and trying to figure out how and when I was going to become a mom, um, I first became a mother to my son, Alex, who's now 31, through an open adoption, and I was present at his birth. Um, but when he was one month old, I became one of the first people in the world to receive a donor's egg. So I, when he was a month old, I became pregnant through egg donation. And how um, did you, how did you even, how, being the first, how did you know about egg yeah. donation? How, how did that happen? So, well, it was, um, you know, pretty incredible. What happened is that I had actually been part of a program that was the, a very early precursor to egg donation. This is more of a history lesson than probably most oh, people okay. need. <laughs> but um, it was called ovum transfer. And it was a process by which this, this tells you what a dinosaur I am and how interesting the evolution of these processes are. It was a process where they would take a fertile woman that we would today call a donor, and they would actually inseminate her with the infertile person's husband's sperm. So my sperm would go into a fertile woman. She would actually, the uh, sperm would fertilize the egg in her. She would essentially almost become pregnant, but before the fertilized egg would implant in her uterus, they would do what's called a uterine lavage, which is where they would wash out That's the fertilized insane. egg and transfer wow. it to me. Whoa, I did so, not know that was possible. Yeah. I did not know that's how it used to be done. Well, it was My tried own. to be done that way. So it was it was not exactly research. It was actually happening, but it didn't happen very well. So what happened is that, for one thing, they had too many retained pregnancies. So the fertilized, they wouldn't, they wouldn't wash it out early enough. Um, and that woman would become pregnant with somebody else's And not a traditional baby. surrogacy like we think of and today. She, right, yeah. Right. Not, right. not part of the plan. Right. right. And the other thing was it just didn't work very well. So eventually that, be, that went defunct. And that was going on for a few years. And I was a part of that program we never actually but it did work sometimes is that the idea yeah yeah wow, it did work so sometimes amazing. okay so um i was a part of that and when that program closed completely for a variety of reasons the patients were referred to somebody who was just starting to do egg donation like one of the first doctors in the world that was starting to do it so I was referred. An actual petri dish this time, though, right? <laughs> well, it actually wasn't a petri dish. I had gift, which you know, for some people listening, you might know that gift is actually where they put the eggs and the sperm unfertilized in the fallopian tube, and then they let nature take its course. In your, in your fallopian tubes. Yes. Yes. So, so the procedure I actually did have is that they took somebody else's eggs, four of them. Wow and my husband's sperm, and they put two of each in each of my fallopian oh my tubes. Gosh. So you could be pregnant with a or more. That's one, of them, one of them worked and became my son, Daniel, who turned 30 years old in March. Wow, congratulations. So that's how, um, that's how I went from adoption. So we had consulted when we were referred to him, we had consulted. And at the time we were told that there was a very long waiting list. So we thought, okay, well, that's great. We'll go on the waiting list because in those days, quote, donors were actually IVF patients. And the IVF patients were essentially saying, I can't use all my eggs, so you can give them to somebody who needs them. And there they were, weren't freezing them probably at that point either. So basically oh, if they no. retrieved 10, then you needed other well, people to Well, they not only weren't freezing them, they weren't even freezing embryos. 
That's how long ago it was. So if you were having IVF, they would only, um, you, you know, they would fertilize four or six or eight because back then they did things like that. They would fertilize them and then transfer those embryos and the rest of the eggs would just go in the trash. But logistically, you had to go in the same day some other IVF patient was having egg retrieval and hope that she had more than a couple because so she'd have extra. So logistically, what would happen is that since I didn't have a cycle and I wasn't actually matched with anybody, there was no matching at all. So I was on estrogen and progesterone to create an artificial cycle indefinitely, um, like all the time. So it wasn't even like the people now who could like look at it and be like, I want somebody who has brown hair and blue eyes or any of that. It was just like oh, literally no. the woman that was there oh, that no. day was who was your. That's um, correct. So that's just a little bit of history about it. And, um, and you know, since that time, luckily she and I have become known to each other and we've become friends and we see each other about once a year and we exchange photographs and, uh, it's been pretty wonderful and pretty fabulous, but it didn't start out that way. It started out with her as a complete stranger, and the information that I was given about her wasn't even correct. It was all all on faith. So, and does she have kids? Like, do your kids know each other? She has a son. My son has opted not to meet her or her son, who's older, actually, than my son. So she had a child when this occurred. Um, and that's his, his option. He knows everything about her. He knows that I see her every now and then. He knows where she lives. He, there are no questions unanswered, but he's opted not to have a relationship with them at this time. I think he probably will someday. Right. That's interesting. So I, I can see how that might spark your uh, shift in mental health. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of what you're looking exactly. For. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of stuff yeah. that we, like, now even would There's a lot of issues here. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, well, at the time, there were very few people specializing in this, in the mental health field. And um, so it was just a natural segue. I like to say that over the course of those three years before becoming a parent, I became, as all patients do, an expert in the field and started attending the conferences with colleagues and the medical conferences as well as um, the psychological focus. And so I became an expert not only in the medical piece, but in the psychological piece, even though I was also living it. Does that, does that help or <laughs> you know too much? Um, I, I think it was very helpful. I think it was very, very helpful. Um, you know, you don't have to go through something in order to, to be able to help a client through whatever they're going through. And certainly I've not had a lot of the experiences that many of my clients have had. Um, but it, it is helpful to be able to completely relate to the notion of losing one's genetics and what it means to create a family where the conversation about that is sort of always present. And that's really how my, my career got launched was that I was, um, one day my kids were one and two, they're 10 months apart. So I round it up and call them a year apart. Um, and I was reading, uh, a book about adoption to really my older son, uh, who was two years old, but they were flanked on each side of me. And as I was reading this adoption book, I said to my younger son, and this is sort of, kind of like what <laughs> I did with you. Right? Um, and started talking about egg donation and the fact that I had help from another woman and you know, just sort of started to try to figure out how to help him understand that as well. But for me, it felt very similar, even though I grew him and I gave birth to him. To me, it was a genetic adoption. And that's really how my career sort of got launched and how I became, I'll say, known for helping parents figure out how to talk to their kids and other people 
about how they created their family. Yeah, and I say that's a huge thing we hear a lot is talking about, I mean, we get that question a lot is how do I talk to my kids about this? How do I, I mean, that's a, you, you're, you definitely have to have been pioneering because there wasn't anybody leading ahead of you <laughs> on this. No, in fact, when I first um, started doing this work, uh, you know, it was mostly sperm donation was, donor conception meant sperm donation when I was first diagnosed. And there, even in the mental health field, there was a split over how, how much we needed to weigh in on whether or not parents should tell their children the truth. And even the mental health professionals were kind of split on truth telling. Uh, but it was still very, very much a secret. When did you start to see a shift in that? Because I, I know now people are very try very hard to encourage much more open sharing. But w when did that tip? Well, I like to say we fought the good fight for about 25 years, and it was very, very slow. But um, what helped a great deal is that in 2008, oh, no, now I'm questioning myself. Was it 2004 <laughs> or eight? We won't hold you to that date. How's that? Um, <laughs> The uh, American Society for Reproductive Medicine published what they call a position paper. And the position paper stated that although it was certainly a parent's prerogative to make that decision for their family, that it was believed to be in the best interest of families and children in particular to know the truth of their genetic identity. Um, and that what happened is that once that was addressed to the medical professionals, that's when we started to see a little shift because the biggest challenge that I had as a mental health professional is that for 20 years, people came into my office and they'd say, well, I asked my doctor if I should tell my child that we did, uh, we had a sperm donor and he said, no, this is our secret between the three of us and no one needs to know. And as we know, you know, patients revere their physicians and they believe that their guidance is gospel and that they know what they're talking about. And so once the shift started to occur with physicians and physicians started to be a little more, it's not like everybody was saying, oh yeah, you should definitely tell the truth. <laughs> but they were a little more like, well, we're not too sure mm. or... Um, you know, we think maybe you should. And then the question was, okay, how? And then they actually reiterated that uh, position in 2012 with another paper that came out that just said it again a little more definitively. Um, by that time, we had so much data. In 2012 was a very short six years ago. And there's been a lot of data about donor-conceived families to confirm. Yeah, what is the data showing? The data shows that uh, when children grow up knowing the truth of the means of conception and the truth of their genetic identity, these donor-conceived families do just fine and donor-conceived individuals do just fine. By truth, does that mean who the donor was or just that there was a donor? Well, um, it primarily meant uh, just that there was a donor. In other words, helping a child understand that they're not genetically related to at least one of their parents. Um, and, and basically looking at it more the way we look at adoption, even though there are many, many differences between donor conception and adoption, that piece is taken directly from adoption and nobody would ever consider keeping adoption from a child in the last 40 years. Um, right. Does that extrapolate to, a, even if it's the intended parent's genetic embryo being transferred, does that extrapolate to surrogacy as well? Is telling, do they, are they encouraging people to tell oh, about yes. surrogacy and how the child is carried as well? And, and that extrapolates to them too. Absolutely. It absolutely does. So, and, you know, essentially what what we encourage is that what what I certainly encourage patients is to feel positively about how they're creating their families, to work through the issues that they may have, which 
usually involves some grief, some loss, some sadness, uh, some confusion, some anger, whatever those feelings are, um, and to feel really proud that they have found a way to create their family that's right for them and out of adversity. So basically they needed, they needed help. They asked for help and people helped them. And so then the question that I like to ask, you know, when people are like, well, do I have to tell my child? Do I have to tell anybody? I ask the question, why wouldn't you? So, and, and that usually makes people sort of stop in their tracks and think about, well, why, why wouldn't I? And usually it comes down to some, some form of shame and embarrassment. Um, but it also comes down to a lot of fear. So whether it's surrogacy or it's gamete donation, parents still sometimes have a lot of fear that when the child understands what this all means, that the child will reject the parent that either didn't carry them or isn't genetically related to them. So, so how would you encourage parents to talk to kids, you know, especially as they grow and all the way through to really help mitigate that and make it so that, you know, those fears don't come true? Uh, well, what I do is teach them how to talk to their kids, which starts um, so the recommended style that, that I recommend that seems to work very, very well for people, and I believe strongly in, is that parents start practicing their family building story when they're pregnant or when their surrogate is pregnant. And what that, what that implies when I say family building story, this isn't a story like we're pointing to a child and say, you, Jimmy, you were conceived in this weird way and this really different way. You're donor conceived. And, you know, people worry about stigmatizing children. And sometimes it's, it's because, you know, we're just implying that they were some part of uh, like a science experiment or something of that sort. But this is a, this is a love story. And it truly, you know, there are almost no examples I can think of where family building is not a love story. So the story is how we came together as a family. When it's a two-parent family, that may even start with how the parents met, whether it's mom and mom or it's dad and dad or mom and dad. You know, there's a story about before the child was here and then they very much wanted to grow their family, um, but it takes a part from a man and a part from a woman to make the beginnings of a person. But one of those parents didn't have the part that they needed in order to make the beginnings of a baby. So they went to a doctor and they asked for help and the doctor said, I can help you. There are women or there are men who can help give you that part that you need. So in the beginning, one, it's a construction project. It takes, you know, part A plus part B makes part C. And it's, it's just like building Legos into something. Um, but more importantly, it gives uh, parents the opportunity to practice this story at a time when you can't screw it up. It doesn't matter how emotional you get. It doesn't matter how embarrassed you get. It doesn't matter what words you use. It's just hearing yourself practice this story over and over and over again. And during this time, whether it's during pregnancy or it's when a, a child first comes to you, uh, or it's the first year, two years, even three years, this is a time when you figure out what language you like? What words do you like to use? So there are a gazillion books available now for children born through donor conception. And if you've ever perused them, you see that some use the word donor, some use the word angel, some use the word gift from God, some say seed, um, others use the word helper. Uh, and so this practice time gives you an opportunity to figure out what 
how you want to refer to this person who gave you the DNA that helped you become a, a, a parent. Um, and it depends on your belief system and your style and things. And some people like a scientific way to go and they'll just call it sperm and ovum. And other people might say, you know, an angel from heaven kind of thing. So, um, then when children are about three, four, five years old and they're going to preschool and they're out in the world, they start to recognize and understand that babies actually come from women's bodies. And before that, they really think that they're, um, they've always been here, but in some other form. And that's when they can actually understand that they either came out of mommy's body or they came out of a surrogate's body or somebody else's body. Um, and then through resemblance talk, which is something that takes place in every family, no matter how it was formed, there's resemblance talk, which means the incessant and insidious questions and comments and commentary about who a child looks like, who a child is like, uh, whose nose they have, whose dark hair they might have or not have. And it's through resemblance talk that we just start the process very, very early of helping our children understand that we get different parts of ourselves, including personality and characteristics and talent, from the people that helped create us and from our, our parents. So you might get this from daddy and you might get this from the woman who helped us and gave us that part called an egg but you also get this from mommy because she's your mommy and you're going to get lots of stuff from her, just from her being your mommy. Uh, and then it just grows and grows and you keep talking about the story. And during that time, children are going to ask questions all the way from the very trivial to the very significant. It might be, what was her name? It might be, what was her favorite color? My favorite color is purple. What was her favorite color? And how do you respond when it's an anonymous donor? You just don't have answers to that. What's the best way to address those questions? Uh, well, that's where it's so, first of all, there's no such thing as anonymity anymore. So <laughs> fair fair I don't point. Even, well, let's say unknown to the parent, but we should definitely talk about that too, about what yeah, unknown yeah. to the parent. Well, the, the answer to your question is that we always tell the truth, but we don't necessarily tell the whole story every time. Sometimes when children say something like, do you have a picture of her? They're, they just want to know if you have a picture of her. So we can say, I do have a picture. And whenever you're ready, we can look at it together. So we always want to make sure that we're offering and available and receptive to any of our children's questions about our family building. The, the thing that we have learned through a lot of data and really common sense and what we know about healthy families is that nobody likes to feel like something's being withheld from them, no matter what it is, and especially when it is significant and crucial information about oneself and one's one's own identity and personhood. So we never want them to feel like, yeah, I have it, but you can't have it. You know, this is about them. So, but we also don't necessarily sit down with a five-year-old and tell them, you know, um, give them more information than they're asking for. So it's kind of an art form. You know, it's kind of an art form of answering questions, offering um, long periods of time will go by where maybe your child has no interest at all and then something will pique their interest. So you always want to let them know that whatever information you have is really theirs. I liken it to, to a passport or a birth certificate. My thought is that this information belongs to your child, whether it's the, it's the donor profile or it's, you know, all the information about who this person was, you know, in, including probably eventually a legal contract, but that's way down the line. But the profile primarily is really your child's. 
but you are the holder of it until such time that they're old enough to have it, like a passport. You wouldn't give a passport to a five-year-old, but you might give a passport to a 13-year-old. And do you want to veer off for a second to talk about the anonymity piece? So I will say on this podcast, we've, we've talked about that before where, um, you know, DNA home tests and facial recognition and the internet that people can easily be found. But at the same time, we've talked to other people who still feel strongly that, um, that, uh, should gamete donors should be able to do so with an understanding that they won't be sought after. What are your, what are your thoughts? Oh, first of all, with regard to the very last sentence you said, I will say um, that donors really should not be permitted to think that that is the case because it's not the case. It's simply a myth. A myth. Um, every woman who or man who is considering providing their genetic material to someone else for the purpose of creating a life should absolutely understand that they most likely will be sought after and that even if they're not sought after by the offspring or the family, it is highly likely that at some point in the future, um, people will know that they donated and or that their children might be contacted or other donor offspring will be contacted. Sure, because these home DNA tests will just show this whole kind of all yeah. these branches and maybe yeah. their child or their uncle or something connecting them. And guys, this is happening every single day in really significant ways. There are hundreds and hundreds of people every day who either knew that they were donor conceived and did a DNA test and are now connecting with donors and donor other donor offspring as well as the children of the donor because time has now elapsed and they have children of their own or horribly what is also happening is that every day there are hundreds and hundreds of people all over the world who are discovering that they were donor conceived because they randomly decided to do a DNA test for fun to find out if they really were German or um, Jewish or where they were from in Africa. They were not expecting to find out that they're genetic. That they're and, right. And they get a hit for a 50% match, which means a parent and they go to their parents and say, what's going on here? This is what happened. And sadly, in many cases, the parents are even at that point denying it and lying about it. Um, which doesn't last very long. Eventually the ruse gets, you know, the curtain gets taken down. So, um, you know, we've been, myself and my colleagues have been telling prospective sperm and egg donors for several years that there is no such thing as anonymity, regardless of what the contract says, and that they, they should really seriously consider that they will not be able to keep this a secret from their future partner, from their, their children, their future children, and that they should expect at some point in the future that they will be contacted in some way, shape, or form. Um, and also... And I'm curious what you tell them, what to, what to expect or how to handle or think about mm -hmm. this person suddenly showing up. Like, mm -hmm. Hello, I'm your, your donor-connected right. child. So what, what I do is try to, you know, when, when I'm evaluating donors, which is the opportunity to have these conversations, it's really important, you know, we talk a lot about informed consent and we have all these forms that people sign that says informed consent on it. But it's not informed consent when a woman comes into an evaluation and says, well, you know, I'm just going to bleed out that egg anyway every month, right? It's just going to go away. And that, so I, instead of bleeding it out and getting my period, I'm going to give it to somebody else. Or it's just like blood donation. And that, that tells me that that woman truly is not informed and that she doesn't understand the future consequences of her choice. So the most important thing that we do in an evaluation is help people understand the, the consequences 
at the risks and benefits of, of what they're doing. And that means helping them to understand that they may be taking all these drugs and going in and having a procedure where a needle is punctured through their body and, and eggs are retrieved. But what I tell them is at one time, many years ago, I just wanted a second child and I wanted to be pregnant and I wanted another baby. But that baby is now 30 years old, six foot three, with a beard and a girlfriend. Wow, six three. Wow. And, <laughs> and, like and you know, and very shortly may become a father himself. And now we have another generation of people who, you know, will also have a desire and a need to know the truth of their genetic identity. So what I tell them is babies don't stay babies forever. And this is not blood donation. This is not life sustaining, it's life creating. And that babies grow up and they're curious. And that curiosity about genetic um, identity and genetic connectedness is a perfectly normal thing to want. We all have it, everybody has it, but, but it's been pathologized in families where children may not be genetically related to their parents and they're curious about who they are connected to and then parents get very frightened and they're afraid of what that means and maybe it's an attachment issue and in fact we're all curious about that but we only make it a bad thing when families are formed differently and yeah i'm so i'm i'm curious too how should parents or what would you advise for those parents who didn't who didn't know all this and didn't take that course early on. And now they do have a 25 or 30 year old child and, you know, they, they've kept it hidden this whole time just innocently or, you know, just not understand the consequences. What, what do you well, say? I get contacted all the time, especially in the last, you know, it's very interesting because of these DNA tests. Um, I went decades and I would never get one of these calls. And in the last year, I've had six calls from parents of... Um, do you want to do a, shout, a shout out to 23andMe and Ancestry.com for, for the increased business? No. <laughs> um, and, you know, the, I, the calls had been from the parents of kids anywhere from, I'd say like, 15 in and then the oldest was like 27 and in some cases it was a story like you know i finally had to tell them and so i just told them and now the pardon the expression the you know what has hit the fan um please help me and in some cases it has been my kid took a dna test and now the cat is out of the bag um, right. And I'm sure the fear is like, now they know their mom isn't their mom. And that's not, it's not that simple. Like I am your mom, but. Correct. Well, I, yeah, we would never use that language. And that's, that's right. generally also not how their children feel. Their children don't feel like their mom is their mom. They're angry and betrayed that they were lied to. And now they have a million questions that can't really be answered very easily and on top of trying to process the fact that they have all these questions that they need answers to, they're also trying to process that they were lied to and betrayed. And I will also say that in uh, a couple of these cases, the one of the parents was deceased. And, um, and it really complicated matters because... Um, whether it's the parent that they were connected to or the parent that they're not connected to, it, it leaves the offspring in this feeling like, well, I can't even go to them and talk to them about it and talk to them about how they felt. So it's, um, it's a disaster. It's very challenging. I won't say it's a disaster. I would, I'll take that back. What I will say is it is an opportunity for Good, po positive language. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Tell it, the love story. Tell, how you tell that love story? Well, at that point, it's a little harder to tell the love story. <laughs> the love story works better when kids are younger. 
but, sure. but what is really true throughout is that it's still extremely important that the parent is forthcoming. At this point, it's not a question of titrating how much information you have and you're going to release. At that point, every shred of information that you have needs to be given to this individual because it belongs to them and they're now mature and adult enough to have it. Um, and it's all about the relationship. It's all about, and it always is. It's all about, you know, what do we do as parents? We try to fulfill our children's needs. We try to be there for them. We try to help them navigate the tough stuff that life throws at us. It's not our job to protect our children from pain. It's our job to give them the tools to deal with it when it happens. And that's as true for parents who are not DNA related to their children as much as those who are. Um, right. So, I mean, even that, that kind of basic concept is really hard to understand that we're not supposed to protect our children from pain. Because I think people do think that and not this other way of thinking about it, that no, that they're going to experience pain, you're going to give them tools. Absolutely. And, you know, people who say, well, I don't want to tell my child um, you know, that we had an egg donor because I don't want them to hurt is just wrongheaded on every single level. Right. And the reality is they'll, they'll probably hurt more when it inevitably comes out and you chose not to tell them. They definitely will. They definitely will. So for anybody who's listening who hasn't shared the information with their children yet, I would encourage you that it is never too late to <laughs> tell the truth. Do you have recommendations for resources for those persons? I know you mentioned that there's a lot of a lot of books, a lot of literature. Is there anything that you can point to that might be a source? Well, it's a lot harder, it, you know, when they're older, and especially for adults. But um, there are a couple of resources in general for donor-conceived families uh, that has have bibliographies and articles that are written. One is the Donor Sibling Registry, which is a nonprofit organization where people can register and try to be matched not only with donors that help them create their families, but also with um, other donor offspring, which would be the siblings of one's children. And there's a bibliography there as well. The other is Parents Via Egg Donation which is pved.org, and that is uh, a nonprofit organization dedicated to information, support, and resources for families created through egg and embryo donation. There are a lot of articles on there. The other is the Donor Conception Network in the UK, and that is dcnetwork.org. They have some of the best children's books available for every family constellation you can imagine. They also have a series of pamphlets called Telling and Talking. And the Telling and Talking uh, books are actually broken down into uh, age groups. The books are intended to help parents uh, know how to talk to their children about donor conception and also, interestingly, what children understand when. So they're grouped by development. The first is 0 to 7, then it's 8 to 11, 11 to 17, and there's actually one for 17 and over. Great. Um, it's not too late. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's never, ever too late. Um, no, that sounds like great resources. And then um, there are some resources available uh, through the American Society of Reproductive Medicine and the group of mental health professionals that specialize in this is called the Mental Health Professional Group. And I did want, it's called MHPG, and I did want to mention here that if anyone is looking for a mental health professional in your area, that's a good place to start to to find somebody that you know is a specialist in this area because general therapists won't know very much about donor conception and they're often filled with the same misinformation as other people. 
So the MHPG is a good place. There is a directory on ASRM where you can try to find uh, a therapist that does specialize. Perfect. And we can put a link in the, the show notes as well and on the website so people can find it easily. Great. Do you, for someone who is planning on using a donor egg or donor sperm, are there kind of big, big issues that you feel like people don't know going into it? Like what are like the biggest ones that you feel like they need to know and need to be thinking about? You want me to narrow it down, huh? <laughs> <laughs> right. Why don't you ask a big question? Um, <laughs> Well, yeah, I think that the the two biggest issues are certainly trying to understand what their child might need and want, which is everything we have just talked about for the last 45 minutes. Um, and, and that they, you know, to have as much information as possible about the person who's helping them become a parent, to have a very complete profile, and whenever possible, to select a donor, and this includes sperm and egg, uh, or embryo, embryo for that matter, um, to have collaborators for their family building that are open to contact either now and or in the future. And that's not necessarily binding, but it does show a willingness and an openness and an acknowledgement that there's gonna be a person resulting from this that they have some responsibility to. So such a, it's such a big issue. And I'm sure you probably were there where you think I just want a baby. It's really hard to, to think 30 years down the road. And can, do you mind if I ask going back? Did you, were you thinking about those issues yourself when? Yes, I definitely you, was because I, well, um, I had, I think I had an advantage in some ways because I was a parent first through an open adoption and like, like all prospective adoptive parents, I went through classes and I became educated about what it meant to have a family of adoption. It's not the same. And by the time my child came to me and I had a relationship with his birth mother and then maintained a relationship with his birth family, et cetera, and she was sending pictures of her other children, um, and also just my nature, you know, being kind of open and truth-telling and like, well, this is hard, but okay, we're going to get through it, is um, it, was, it was very, very hard for me to go in for my gift procedure and have to drill the medical staff with questions about the woman whose egg I was going to be receiving. And I was met with um, over and over again, why are you asking all these questions? This is going to be your baby. When they put this baby in your arms, you'll never think about it again. Um, the answers were reluctantly given and honestly, truth, this is the God's honest truth. They were wrong. They were wrong about like her ethnicity. They were wrong about, um, you know, the places that her people had come from, um, and it didn't matter at that point because there was no matching. It wasn't like anybody was trying to match her to me and my son never looked like me. And, but I was curious about certain things, but you have to remember those were IVF patients. So the information they had on her was not what you have on a woman applying to be a donor through an agency. Um, so they didn't know a lot of those answers, but even basic phenotypical information. Um, essentially, I was criticized for wanting to know it as if that was a really bad thing and that somehow I felt this child wouldn't be mine. So yes, I did. And I don't know if it was because I was in the world of adoption first. Um, but it's absolutely true that you know, people feel like, well, we'll deal with it down the line, or I don't want this now. And, you know, another thing I want to mention is that we absolutely know now that we've been doing this for decades, that people change their minds over time. And I know um, being the mental health advisor for parents via egg donation, uh, we know that time and time again, parents who initially are frightened and intimidated and don't want to know who the woman is and they don't want that much information and sometimes don't even want a picture because they don't want a picture in their head of her, will come back 
you know, anywhere from one year to many years later and say, boy, did I have it wrong? And now I love my child so much. I want to give them everything they might possibly want or need. And, and the fact that I don't have this information is killing me. So at that point, they might go back to their agency or their clinic and try to get a lot more information than they were initially given. And why does that happen? Because they're not scared anymore. They know that they are the mother of this child. They know that no bond can break that. They know that DNA doesn't make a family. And so they're coming from a different vantage point and a different perspective, and it all looks different, yeah. and the fear is gone. No, that's that's really good to remember that things change, and your perspective can can very be very different after a year or two or longer. Um, well, I, I appreciate you being such a great resource. I think this is really helpful information. Um, we'll also throw on the website other, other links or other material you think is good, and we'll make sure we get that there as well. But I really appreciate your time and all that you do for, for helping. Um, oh, it's my great pleasure. It's my passion in life. So I'm, I'm happy to, to share and be a resource to anybody who needs it. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. lesson of the day uh multiple lessons one is that jen needs better internet or computer since we lost her very very early on in that interview unfortunately um the other lesson i mean i think carol some really good um points that i that you know disclose early early and often and there's some really good thoughtful ways to do it when you're when you're having a child that's donor conceived um and there's a lot of really great resources to turn to so we we will be sure to just include some links on the website um, to, to help point people in the right direction if they're looking looking for those. Yeah, so please go check out our website, uh, I want to put a baby in you.com. And also, you know, while you're there, just click on through, go to iTunes, review us, you know, maybe tell them that you like us or, or that, you know, that we have pretty hair. You know, we, we like to hear those things. Girls like to hear those things sometimes. I, did, um, you, did you even shower before this? I, I did mm. shower today. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> so, Luckily, this isn't video. I mean, generally, I do ask people to call us on our number at 303-997-1903 because maybe I haven't showered most days and I might be recording in my pajamas even if I did shower, but, but you don't need to know that. Uh, so, but thank you. Huge thank you. Cause we forgot to say thank you last week to Chris at work at bird studios who, regardless of how we look makes us sound pretty okay. So thank you, Chris. <laughs> thank you to everybody for listening. We really love it. 